This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I finished these fights. Give me a hell yeah. Top Rope Nation. Learn to love it. It's the best thing going today. What's up, guys? This is Ryan and Kyle, and we're here with a special interview this week we are really pumped for. So we are joined today by the author of a wrestling book that I got to say has been getting a lot more attention than any wrestling biography in quite a while. I mean, unless you have been living under a rock, you have got to have heard of this. If you've been on Twitter, if you've been on Amazon, of course, if you've been on any of the wrestling sites, everyone's talking about the book. It is the biography on Brian Pillman. The title is Crazy Like a Fox, the Definitive Chronicle of Brian Pillman, 20 years later. Joining us live from the UK, Liam O'Rourke, welcome to Top Rope Nation. Thanks for joining us. No, man, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, big fan of the show, and I'm uh, glad to talk to you guys. Very good. Glad to hear yeah. that. Keep tuning in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kyle turned me on to the show last year, and like ever since then, it's just been like, yeah, it's kind of on my, uh, my playlist. Awesome. Good to hear. And and this is only the second time that Liam and, I, Liam and I have ever spoken, believe it or not. Liam and I go way back. Not a lot of people probably know that, but we go way back. But, uh, you know, we met for the first time uh, around this time last year in the catacombs of the Citrus Bowl, if you remember, <laughs> or Camping World Stadium. Pardon me, <laughs> uh, Liam. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as Dean Ambrose, a... yeah, Dean Ambrose was working Baron Corbin in a... Uh, kind of a phoned in affair but that's a different story for a different time <laughs> yeah no it was, a, it was it was a great encounter years in the making it was uh it was it was kind of like a savage hogan uh, kind of union but uh yeah i, I was i was i was very uh, enthused to, to to see that uh i mean of all the places too you know it's just like and, and i always kind of had the perception of like uh, the citrus bowl as being this kind of grandiose area for some reason i didn't realize in a real crack den part of orlando yeah, it's kind of dumb. But uh, but yeah, in the middle of it all, in the middle of it, of a Dean Ambrose Baron Corbin match that, like you said, phoned in as it was on the pre-show. Uh, but in the middle of you being rearranged from your uh, your seats, as I remember. That's right. Yes, I did call it audible. I uh, I'm known to complain, and I was not uh, shy about <laughs> lifting my finger up. As we, we we had the obstructed seats last year at Mania, and I I found a, a I remember you texting me about that and you were pissed yeah I was like come <laughs> on man and but I, I found somebody and like he was like all right I'll help you and then he kind of blew me off I was like hey man he's like all right come here and he yeah he led us to great seats and then um it was even better I didn't do the mega powers handshake but I bet you did I Liam I, no, I don't think so I but do. we really should have no yeah, we, we should have but let's talk about the book and it's funny we bring that encounter up we had last year at Camping World Stadium because 
did you mention that you were doing a book to me? Was I too hammered to remember that? I mean, these, <laughs> this is the question that I've been thinking about. You know, for those of uh, uh, out there listening that haven't heard you talk about this before, when did you come up with the idea of this book? And, and talk about the genesis of you writing it. Yeah, yeah. So I started the Genesis was about two years ago, eh, probably a little bit more than that now, about two and a half years ago, I'd say. So it was absolutely something that was in the works when we met, but I didn't bring it up just because, you know, I didn't, it's one of those things that until it's done, I didn't really want to go around talking about how it was in the works because, you know, I expect if I if I say, yeah, I'm going to do this book on Brian Pillman, for people to like just pat me on the head and say, okay, yeah, sure, good, good, good for you, kid, kind of a thing. But uh, no, I mean, it really kind of a couple of years ago, I would I'd watch the WWE's DVD on him one more time, just like in the background one day just to have something on. I don't know why, but it really kind of stuck in my craw watching it back, just how much of the story was missed. And uh, because I've been kind of studying Pillman forever anyway and, and kind of researching his life just for my own interest, um, I knew that there was so much that was missed. And I just remember thinking, you know what? This this really is a story that actually requires a book to kind of summarize Pillman and, and how unique a personality he was and how incredible his career and his life story really is. And uh, I just remember thinking, you know what, someone, you know, it, it's worthy of a book. Somebody should write it. And I think my brother actually kind of dared me because I was complaining about it. And he said, well, why don't you, if you think you know so much kind of a thing? And, you know, after about six months of kind of, you know, kind of doing some kind of preliminary interviews and kind of getting my notes in order and stuff like that, I actually thought, you know what? I think that I could do a pretty good job of this and actually contribute something. I didn't want to just kind of knock together a half-baked thing. It was, you know, but it's going to have to be pretty damn good or I don't want to release it to the world. So even to the point where, yeah, when I met you, Kyle, and we were talking, uh, at that point, it wasn't completely fully fleshed out and there was still a lot of, there was a lot of room to go. There's a lot, there's a lot of interviews I was still trying to land at the time. So I was very much at the mindset of it's going to get done right or it's not going to see the light of day. So it was definitely something I was kind of keeping kind of close to the chest for uh, most of those two years. Okay, so I guess I don't feel terrible now because I was like, no, when, no. I, well, when you announced it, um, you know, I think on Facebook, I, I just your personal Facebook page, I think it was, I was like, what? I was like, wow, <laughs> that's that's unbelievable, man. And I'm like, did he tell me this? And I, and I, I didn't contact you right away because I actually legitimately felt horrible that you might have said that to me and I and I had forgotten. So, <laughs> um, now, for people who don't know you, you, you have a background in writing, correct? Yeah, yeah. So oh, I, I've... I got, I got a degree in journalism and editorial design from the University of Wolverhampton here in England. Uh, I wrote for a local paper doing sports for a little while. Uh, ended up working in you know, writing for medical journals, of all things, um, which I'm absolutely not qualified to do in terms of medical. Um, but I, I just kind of fell into people who, you know, kind of had the right connections. And it was very much kind of the same as this, where it's like, you know, you're interviewing a bunch of doctors and you're kind of trying to sift through fact and fiction and trying to put something together. And, you know, the way that it works in that world is that, you know, I would kind of work as like a, a copy, like a press release kind of guy. But when I'd send things out to these medical journals, they'd just say, like, instead of, like, doing what you would think, like, a lot of websites and stuff do, where it's like, we'll take it and we'll just reword it, which is what I expected, they would just come back to you and just say, we like the topic, can you do 2,500 words? And then you kind of have to go away and interview a bunch of doctors and stuff like that, and that's pretty much what it was. So that was kind of my uh, my writing background for years, and, and obviously coming back here, uh, I moved, kind of got away from that scene for a little bit, and I didn't have that immediate thing that, that immediate kind of occupation to write about. So I kind of, it's like, you know, I'm not, I've got that writing itch, but I'm not working in writing at the minute. So it was just, it was kind of that, that the perfect storm as well of the timing with the Pillman thing uh, and, and the documentary, like I said. And it's kind of came together. And it's like, you know what? This is the perfect thing for me to write about. So yeah, and, and yeah, like you say, it's kind of, a, it's my background anyway. All right, here, here's a Kyle question for you. Okay, so you talked about the DVD. I'm glad you brought that up because 
people forget that was one of the first full length DVDs they did, I think. Yeah. It was like him and Jake Roberts. And it really comes through in the book, you being a fan. I'm obviously a big fan of Brian Pillman as well. Ryan is as well. Um, so he's got this enduring legacy. And, uh, you know, obviously you were able to write a book and we're talking about the guy 20 years later, a DVD. There were memorial shows for him. I was lucky enough to be at, uh, I believe, the third one. It was oh, one was the year I, I went. I'm almost positive. It was 2001 was the year I went. But here's my question to you. How do you explain him having this legacy that we're still talking about two decades later when, you know, the loose cannon persona essentially was 15, 18 months of his career. It didn't necessarily draw any money at the time. What is it that has been able to have, you know, Brian Pillman some, be someone that we're still talking about two decades later? Uh, I think that I think the people who were kind of fans during that era, even like you know him entering WCW, he was part of a lot of firsts. When I think about it, like looking back, it's like you know him, you know him doing this stuff with Liger, and and that kind of really breaking through in the in the early nineties, and kind of you know really standing out and and, and being like the. I think there's so much of it that there's so many reasons why I think he he does stand out. So yeah, you know, it's just like everything from the fact that that whole loose cannon thing appeals appealed to a certain type of fan a certain demographic that now kind of you know dominates you know twitter and the internet um in terms of the kind of the, the quote-unquote smart fan or the smart mark or whatever you want to say uh and even just even going to the fact that he was the first wwf performer under contract heavily featured that died on vince's watch uh, i think things like that all kind of contribute to you know, there's fond memories of brian and he was, well, he was, he was one of the, he was an internet darling anyway. He was a typical almost guy for years and years and years with, with the, you know, with the, with the you know, there's a baby face and then with the blondes and then with the loose cannon. And, you know, it's such a naturally tragic story anyway. And I think that you know, the, the uniqueness of his personality to the people that were around him really is what sustains to those guys. And that's where you see the memorial shows and stuff like that. Um, but I think in terms of the fandom, it's just that people look at him as like a classic case of just the, the ultimate guy who, was such an overachiever and and was very inspiring in that sense, but at the same time underachieved because you could just see the potential for so much more. And I think that he really it really strikes a chord when you really go into it and you really think about how how incredible the loose cannon scam really was. That six months when he really was working WCW and working every end against the middle. Um, I just think it's such a unique case. I think he's such a unique guy, and I think that he was. I don't think that Brian was. I was talking to Mike Johnson about this, and it was it, was, it just kind of came up that you know Brian was kind of the first in a lot of different ways, and but it was you know in terms of being on the crest of the wave, you know that kind of the edgy character in '96 when he became the loose cannon, and you know the high flying stuff with Liger. But it wasn't. I don't think it was that the business wasn't going to go that way anyway. I just think that it was that Brian was smart enough to see it was going that way, and then got ahead of the curve, yeah, and, and kind of was the first in line. And I think because of that a lot of people have got these memories of Brian that are really kind of striking because obviously when when that stuff becomes commonplace later you know the attitude era or just high-flying wrestling in general it becomes far more commonplace it becomes less unique and it becomes far less memorable but when it's the first thing you see it, it really kind of resonates with you a lot stronger in the sense that i think like sean and razor in the lad match at mania, at mania 10 to me is the is the greatest lad match ever because i saw it at the time and i think it's i just i was blown away when i saw it the first time but if you show fans now that ladder match for the first time, they probably wouldn't get the same thing out of it, I assume. Um, and, and I think that's the case with Brian. It's just if you were there at the time and you, you lived through it, 
you would you, you just have these vivid memories of just how unique he was and then obviously dying it's, it's, it's the classic you know the Kurt Cobain type you know the early death and what could have been and I think that really kind of captivates the imagination of a lot of people I think okay. I, I got a question kind of coming off of that because you kind of hinted at it there and talked about it a little bit but uh, Kyle had mentioned how he didn't really draw any money at the time and you're talking about how you know, he was at the beginning of the wave, and that's so accurate. Like, he was definitely ahead of his time. And so when you look at him, you know, today, the Internet fans would be all over that. Like, it would be a, a huge draw. Do you think the reason that it didn't draw money was because he was too much ahead of his time? Or do you think you can just pinpoint that on the, the shattered ankle that he had that unfortunately kind of derailed everything when he came into the WWF? I don't think it drew any money because he wasn't put in a position to draw money. I think that's kind of the the, the charm of of what he did as the loose cannon was that he he realized that there is nothing he can do in the position he's in to actually draw any money because he was going to be kept in the middle no matter what. So how do you when you, when you're in a position where you can't actually you know it's the typical thing you know it's, it's it's been talked about in wrestling for years and years and years and unless you are positioned as a star, it's kind of hard to break through and actually become a legitimate star and and draw real money. You know, very few guys are responsible for drawing big money. So because of that, and Brian knew, you know, at, at that crucial point, he's 33 years old, he wants the better contract, but how am I going to get it when I can't prove in any real meaningful way that I'm worth it? And the whole the whole idea of the loose can scam was not really to draw money, it was to draw attention. Because it's, it, in a world where at that point, you know, late 1995, while the Monday Night War had started, neither company was really on fire yet. In fact, in December of 95, things were really looking bad for both companies. Like on pay-per-view that, that month, December 95 was just rotten. Um, but because of that, like the, the, the talk, the attention, that underground buzz, that became valuable because both companies are just looking for anything that, that can stand out and, and, and make a difference perhaps. And to that audience, you know, the, the, the underground, the newsletter readers, the ECW fans, you know, Brian did a lot of stuff that basically made him the talk of that community. And even if Bischoff and McMahon weren't necessarily, you know, listening to everything that, that audience was saying, they could still hear them. You know, they're making a loud enough noise where people knew what Brian Pillman was doing. And and he figured out that all I've got to do is is make this loud enough noise to make it seem like and it really was an illusion, just creating the illusion of value. When you can create the illusion of value. Vince will try and get you, and as soon as Vince tries to get you, Bischoff's going to want to keep you that much more. It's funny you talk about that, and this is a God's honest truth. The first time I ever went in a wrestling chat room, it was 1996, the old AOL wrestling chat room. Oh, yeah. The first thing, I'm, I'm not making this up, that I saw was all caps, oh, my fucking God, did you see what Brian Pillman did last night in ECW? <laughs> and like and that's like so so it speaks to like just how hot it was at the time and how it resonated and i wrote down you know i think there's no denying how ahead of the curve he was at that period oh, but yeah. i wrote down i wrote down two words that you talked about and there's obviously a dichotomy there overachiever and underachiever how he was able to kind of do that simultaneously and i, I want to bring that into a discussion about today would brian be more or less successful today do you think because the size, which and we'll double back to his time in WCW here in a bit, really kind of limited him in the eyes of a lot of the, those in power at the time. Yeah. But size is not that big of a deal now. I mean, we see, I mean, the average wrestler today is much, I mean, is, is, is a lot smaller than it used to be, certainly when he came up. But at the same time, the attitude 
how would that play in a WWE locker room, which strives to be so homogenous, no problems whatsoever, fall in line? I mean, how, how do you think, you know, I know Kim Wood had some comments in the book about how Brian, you know, would fare, but, you know, how, how do you think Brian would fare into modern WWE? I think he'd do way better now. I really do. I, it's, it's, it seems like the easy thing to say, but I really think he'd do better now because there's, there's, I always notice this when Steve Austin talks to guys from the current roster and he, he remember, that, and remember that horrible interview he did with Dean Ambrose on the network mm-hmm. where Ambrose was doing his usual laid back calm shtick and Austin's there looking furious that this guy doesn't have the same kind of drive to succeed that he had. And I just think that as much of a, as much of an issue as the size was uh, in, in Brian's time, and how that wouldn't be an issue today, even though the attitude would be kind of slightly is, is slightly homogenized. I think that Brian's personal real life attitude was such that he was just going to find the way to succeed. Like if he couldn't succeed with that, he was going to find another way. That's that that to me is Brian's legacy because he really is. When you actually look through the course of his career, he's really kind of a playing space kind of guy because. You know, he, he realized when they were going to push him as a heavyweight in, in WCW in 91 that they were never going to do it properly. They're never going to treat him seriously because of the size. So because of that, he lobbies for the light heavyweight division. And he thinks that that could be his key to stardom because that way he'll be away from everybody else. He's trying to find a way. And they stick him in an interim tag team that's not supposed to mean anything. And he and Austin, again, through that drive to succeed, make it something great. And then, of course, that gets shut down. And then he comes up with a loose cannon and, and ends up, you know... I think, yeah, if, had he not had the wreck, he would have had an incredible career. And I just think that if he was into if he was in today's environment, I think that he would have been more inclined to evolve. And that's one of the things that, you know, homogenized environment or not, I think really feels like it's lacking in the WWE today is that the, the guys don't really feel like they're evolving ever. It's like they arrive, they arrive on the main roster and they kind of stay as they are. And it almost kind of feels like they're kind of, you know, they kind of throw their hands in the air to a degree and think, well, it's not in our hands anyway, whether it's because it's... it's Kind of so heavily scripted or whatever it's it's almost like okay when, when they arrive at the big dance it's then in the it's not in their hands to really progress and everyone kind of feels the same once they get there and i don't think brian would have been like that i think brian would have been constantly wanting to do things different to try and stand out yeah i think the business just really lacks the spontaneity that it had at the time back then like brian is a perfect example of a guy who would have you on the edge of your seat what's he going to do next you know like kyle mentioned a second ago what he saw in the chat room oh my god did you see what brian pillman did last night you know that's uh he was liam you mentioned you know he was the darling of of the internet crowd and it's it's so interesting because the internet crowd is the majority of the crowd these days but it was such a small part of the crowd back then that yeah you got to imagine if if he's around today he would play to that that most vocal part of the audience just perfectly i think he would be a massive star too Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, he has to manipulate the, the, the audience and the surroundings around him. But I think that the, what, what's strange about it now is that as, as much as like the, there is that community that seem, that has the loudest voice, it seems like at least obviously online, but like at the especially at the pay-per-views, you always notice the uh, kind of the, that same kind of attitude at the pay-per-views. But I just think that, you know what, it's not supposed to be that way. And Brian's Brian kind of. I think he saw that it was kind of that was gonna that kind of audience was gonna rise and that hey it's be- it's better to be with them than against them kind of a thing and, and kind of use it for my benefit. But the whole idea at that time, because they were such a small percentage, was take advantage of them, manipulate them to be kind of making such a loud noise and talking about nothing but Brian Pillman, ultimately so that he could then get the better contract to appeal to the casual fans and be put in a position where he could really draw money and be a top star outside of that small bubble. And I think that 
I think there's sometimes it's to the detriment of, of, of the business that they kind of cater to that smaller bubble so much. Yeah, I was going to say, would he go Cyber Slam 96 on the modern audience and just, oh, you know, got to turn it on so. them? Yeah, turn, turn them on themselves. Um, I want to talk, you talked about, you know, Brian, for those who did not follow his career in WCW. Um, other than Ric Flair, Brian had quite the rocky relationship with the other bookers in charge, generally oh, yeah. speaking. And I'm a big guy with match wrecks and stuff like that. And, you know, the attention to detail in this book, you know, as everyone has probably heard by now who's followed it, is incredible. And as a big wrestling fan, whenever I read something like this, I don't know what you think, Ryan or, or Liam, when you read other people's books, if you think this way, I'm always intrigued on it's like, OK, I've got this preconceived notion. This is what I think happened. Is this going to be confirmed by me? And so there was one story in particular I was on, uh, I was looking for throughout this book, and it, it was confirmed. Fall Brawl 95 against Johnny B. Bad. To me, the backstage story surrounding that match and what Brian was able to do in spite of what, <laughs> how he was set up to fail is sort of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think is the perfect illustration of Brian's career. Would you agree with that? And you can go into the situation. I don't want you to give away too much that's in the book, Liam, but you can go into that situation how much ever you want. Um, would you agree that that's kind of the perfect illustration of uh, of Pillman's career? Oh, for sure, for sure. Because think about this. Like this is this is a pay per view that they are kind of putting something on there in Baden Pillman, who for those who who don't know two baby faces and Pillman wasn't a particularly hot baby face because he'd been doing nothing for a long long time to go out there for 30 minutes with, with like no real issue just a, a you know fairly cold match dump him out there and go for because the whole idea at the time was that Sullivan had just become the booker and he'd had his idea and, and was loudly touting about how we'll have the big stars like Hogan on top but we'll have the workers underneath carrying the show and I think that Hogan was kind of trying to you know, it, and it was a Hogan call, but it was it was the idea of putting some of these guys in their place to let them know that, you know, that this kind of attitude will fail. And just the thought that they will put something on TV, on pay-per-view, no less, that they're their most loyal audience, in theory, deliberately hoping that something doesn't work and Brian finding a way to make it work. And if you watch that match back, it's really quite remarkable because, again, the fans are cold early because there's nothing really to get into because why would you? But they work so hard and it's it's just such a well-done match where by the end that they're, they're popping for everything and it's they come out where both guys come out looking better. Pillman comes out looking stronger even though he lost. It's just such a great situation where, like you say, here he is dumped in a position to, to fail, deliberately fail because they didn't want these guys getting over and yet he, he somehow turned it around and made it work for himself and came out better for it. And that night, you know, later on was when he interfered in the Arn Anderson, Ric Flair match, helped Arn win. It's so, again, I just think it's such a perfect illustration of his career and how he succeeded in the, in spite of some of those on top that, you know, you, you could argue that was like the big breakthrough of his career because yeah, and, and he, he was also too. Yeah, he was headlining Nitros after that and, you know, would go on to become a horseman, you know, a month later. Yeah, I mean, he th he thought that when that, I remember like he, from what I was talking, I remember Meltzer saying this to me, that he thought going in that that show was not going to be, even though he was going to be involved with Arn and stuff like that, he didn't, he didn't know how well it would play out. And then when the show was finished, it's like, okay, 
he can see that you know, the, the, the horseman's on the horizon. I just had this match where it got over great. I'm, I'm a heel, which he really, really wanted to be at that point. He badly wanted to be a heel. And uh, I, I remember just the whole thing when I was talking to, to Meltzer about it was that he'd said that, you know, in talking to Brian, that Brian had said, you know, when I when this horseman thing pulls off, this is going to be the thing that you know protects me politically because that's what he thought it would be. And then it really wasn't that. It really wasn't what he thought it was going to be. And I think about a month in, he kind of realized that he's going to have to take matters into his own hands again. Yeah, you mentioned Meltzer. Uh, let me just throw this name out. But Dave is is always a hot topic on uh, Twitter, uh, and he obviously contributed. Dave, I mean, you know, everyone. I, I think it's pretty well known that Dave was very good friends with Brian. Uh, talk about you know you dealing with Dave, what that was like, and him kind of him helping you, you know, with stories and you know get this get this project moving. Yeah, so it was like. Uh, when I spoke to Kim Wood, Kim was one of the first guys I spoke to uh, when, when I was actually putting the book together a couple of years back. And when I did, he'd said to me, no matter what happens, no matter what it takes, no matter what you have to do, you have to talk to Dave. Because if you don't talk to Dave, you're, you're just not going to get the full picture. Dave's the guy that really knows. Dave was in there in the trenches with Brian in a lot of different situations. He was working. You know, it was always a, a point of reference for Brian during the negotiations back and forth with, with WCW and WWF because Meltzer spoke to everyone. And because of that, you know, he was able to kind of get access to what they were thinking and, and, and could gauge how to approach both sides. Um, and obviously it goes, it goes far deeper than that, you know, years and years back, but it took me like a year to get Dave on the phone. It was like, it was constant. Like I, every, every week, you know, the observer would be released and I'd say, Hey Dave, how are you looking for the next week? And it would always be, you know, he would always like reply and he would always, you know, talk to me back and forth um, and kind of answer questions anyway. But uh, it was always like, a, uh, you know, I don't know when we're going to have the time to, to actually do the talk, to actually talk, because it was going to have to be a long discussion. And, you know, he's, he's got such a crazy schedule that it's not like he's got like five hours, you know, free at the drop of a hat. So um, it was, it, it took a long time to get together, but we finally did. And uh, and when we did, it was, it was totally worth waiting for, just not because of necessarily him you know, kind of give me any stories I didn't already know, but just the context of what other people were thinking at the time really kind of helped lay the groundwork for the book a little bit deeper. It kind of, you kind of, you know, just, just, just the way that the politics moved. It was really interesting to kind of hear from him about, you know, you know, him remembering when I would kind of throw something at him about, you know, something that Brian did and him being able to say, yeah, I remember this was the reaction and this is what Brian had to do. Um, just little, you know, a lot of little things, but it just, it kind of really helps you know, when you talk about the detail of the book being one of the strengths, that's kind of one of the, I mean, obviously it's, it's one of the, to me, it's one of the strengths of the book anyway. And Dave was very, very pivotal to that. What lessons do you want people to take away from the book? Oh man. Um, I just, I think there's, so I think it's, I think it's that what we just, what we talked about previously about how there's that missing element of wrestling about taking chances with a character and, and evolving and, and not settling to be the same thing forever. I think it's, it really feels like it's missing today. That kind of, that, that, I don't know if it's just that, that, that hunger to like really be a top, top, top guy. I don't know if it's, again, maybe it's because there's only one place to go in, a, in North America that can make you big money. Obviously you've got like you know, guys in the Indies who can, who can make big money by merchandising themselves. But I think that in terms of like a stable position you know, not a lot of guys can be the young bucks you know there can only really be a handful of guys who can be that big at that level so i think that a lot of guys get to wwe and they just want to stay there and, and and ride the wave maybe as long as they can i don't know what it is maybe they don't want to take the risks because you know with with great risk sometimes comes you know great reward but sometimes it fails and i think you know pillman had enough confidence in himself that he wasn't afraid to fail same with steve austin 
you know these these guys that you know did take chances and and, and tried to change and evolve to find what worked so that they would eventually succeed and i think when you look at when you read the book I think that one of the things that really kind of stands out is that he he explored so many different avenues, not just in you know coming up with a character or coming up with different things, but in picking people's brains, in researching, and trying to learn as much about the business as he possibly could. Um, so you know, again, even in the loose cannon chapter of the book, when he's reading all these con man books to kind of understand how to manipulate people in real life, um, you know, that the movies he watched kind of get in that mindset of how to manipulate people, uh, you know, for, for his end game. And just, I think that is kind of really one of the major things that comes out. But I think, the, you know, one of the other lessons too is, you know, you can't go too far in that kind of blurring of fantasy and reality like Brian did because, it, you know, it came with a price, a big price. Yeah, your, your comments on uh, Meltzer made me think of this because reading the book, I learned so much about his early life that I didn't know, you know, going in. And uh, I knew, I knew a little bit about his health troubles as a kid, but you really lay it all out, and then you see how Brian really had uh, kind of an addictive personality. He would, like you said, he would just throw himself into something and just really go after it. And you, first, it's football, and how he did whatever it took to succeed at football. You know, people didn't think he could make his high school team. He makes it all the way to the Cincinnati Bengals, and he's dedicating him, himself in the weight room. He's putting on all these pounds. He gets, uh, you know, he's out. He's on his way out of football. Kim Wood turns him on to pro wrestling. And then uh, the connection there with Dave that I found so interesting is how Wood got Pillman that subscription to the Wrestling Observer. And you talk about how how Brian just poured over the Observer like week after week to really learn the business because maybe you can talk about this. He, He didn't really grow up a wrestling fan, right? He was vaguely kind of familiar with it. I think you said, was it his grandmother or his yeah. grandfather was into it? Yeah, his grandmother is. Yeah, his grandmother used to watch big time wrestling, which was Sheik's territory that played to Ohio. And uh, I mean, he you know he was aware of it. He would watch it a little bit just when he was hanging out with his family. But you know, he was always out playing sports, so he wasn't really much of a TV watcher. And I think one of the things that really is interesting, actually, when you really kind of look at the book, and it, you know, it kind of took me sitting back and really thinking about it when it was finished to kind of realize that it was it's really un- a unique way, especially back then. You know, a guy who didn't really know that much about the business being smartened up by someone who's also outside the business and, and kind of looking at it through a different lens than, than most of the guys did. Because, you know, a lot of the guys, they kind of come in with, you know, you know, big, you know the, the deer in the headlights and they, they get, you know, they're green and everything like that. And I, it's interesting that Kim Wood, who is a, a ridiculously intelligent guy, um, you know, he was the one to smarten up Brian. I mean, Brian had the attitude that wrestlers were, you know, again, as Kim says in the book, these out, you know, these these guys weren't alpha males playing the role of alpha males, but aren't really that tough. And Brian was a legitimate tough guy. I mean, a really, really tough guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think that that kind of really, you, you see that a lot. And I remember that Kim had told me, which I didn't put in the book, that they had talked originally about like what it was like at the top in the main companies, and how that you know the, the perception that Brian had was that these guys were like, they were like borderline mentally ill. These you know the wrestlers because obviously they, they you know with everything they go through and just the, the confidence issues and the gossiping and the backstage chaos and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, it's a, the schedule, everything, the physical demands. And then when Brian got to WCW and Kim asked him, is it like we always thought it was? And Brian said, it's actually worse. Like all, all the top guys, everybody, even the top guys, they're just barely hanging on. Like, and you talk about how Flair was just who at that time was like the booker and the, the WCW champion just looked so tired and looked like he was just going to crack any, any day now. And eventually, you know, he did. 
But um, yeah, so I mean, that's 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 I mean that that's that's the perception going in, and when that's the perception of is of these guys, you know, Brian, who's accomplished something in the real world, you know, the NFL, he made it to the NFL when he was never supposed to, and now he's gonna he's in this predetermined world that he's kind of learning, and he kind of sees these these guys as just kooks, you know, these these odd characters who, you know, can be really majorly messed with, you know. Um, I think he just kind of saw it like he was he was destined to succeed he didn't have any confidence issues he was going to make it as long as he did everything he could he was going to make it and uh and uh, unfortunately he, he he did but he didn't yeah. flair was the one booker brian got along with in wcw yeah why do you think that was um i think that there was a natural personality uh kind of bit of synergy there i suppose i don't know if that's the right word but they, they had a lot in common in terms of you know their their party and habit habits and stuff like that and Cornette kind of put it well in the book where you know flair's introduction to the business again in the awa and you know training under in Vern Gagne's camp and stuff where you got guys like him and ricky steamboat and all these guys who are studs you know these young guys who work hard with a good body and a lot of guys in the business are marks for real athletes or at least were back then um you know someone who actually done something in the real world is kind of you know kind of stands out to these guys who you know in many respects haven't um and, and yeah, I just think that you know, Flair kind of liked Pillman because it kind of reminded him of a young version of himself, to be quite honest. I think that he saw a guy who, a real athlete, good-looking guy, was was new to the business, but had already got a little bit of an aptitude for it. You could see that he was going to be better than he was in his early days. You could see the potential in him straight away. And I think that Flair just saw him and just thought, this guy, you know, in this landscape, in WCW right now, a guy that looks like this, with a body like this, with, you know, the ability to, to you know, Pull chicks and and was a, a tough guy. Is <laughs> is you know this this guy appeals to Flair. I mean it's it, and you know he had a drinking buddy and Flair loved to drink with Brian Pillman. Yeah, those stories were incredible. People need to check the book out solely for that. <laughs> um, if nothing else, I mean I was just laughing my because everything every image you have of Ric Flair in. 1990 is sort of confirmed in the book. And by the way, kids, if you haven't seen it, you got to watch Flair versus Pillman, February 1990. Was that, I can't even remember the name of it. They had so many syndicated. Was that the Power Hour? It's a really good hour of TV. It's the same hour that Lex Luger turns babyface. I can never remember what the name of the show was, if it was the Power Hour or if it was main event. Ah, uh, uh, the, the, the one where it was him and, uh, him and Flair was Saturday night, I think. Okay, so, or, okay, or the other one, Saturday night. There you go. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, People talk about, uh, it's February of 1990, regardless, people, you can find it <clears throat> somewhere. Um, what was your favorite story that you about Brian that you found out in doing the book that you didn't know before? Oh, man, that's a great question. It's kind of like picking my children. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think that yes, I got some really good ones that I couldn't put in the book because they asked me not to, which I might tell you about off air. But, uh, but uh, th- th- yeah, I, I, lo- I love the stuff about how, <sighs> man, it's... <laughs> I love the Bill Kazmaier stories. <laughs> like, when he's just messing with Bill Kazmaier, to me, that's awesome. I love that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I loved finding out stuff about the Loose Cannon. You know, I love finding out that he, you know, his goal, he had a long-term vision in mind to get a Screen Actors Guild card. You know, little details like that that are just really interesting. Like, oh, that's that's kind of end. You know, kind of getting an idea of the way his mind works and the way he ticks. I, I loved finding out about how he actually made the Bengals. Because he was he was brought in as a political move, not necessarily to be. Yeah, he wasn't brought in as a free agent so that he could make the team. I know this has nothing to do with wrestling necessarily, but to me, it's a fascinating story about him and his attitude, which kind of it, it kind of echoes later in life about how here's a guy who was not supposed to succeed. He was brought in as a political move, and he gets injured, 
So he's even more against the eight ball, but he somehow finds a way to make the team. And that, that determination, that grit, that, that unshakable will and not letting an injury get in his way is, is this source of great achievement for Brian in the end. But at the end of his life, it's not quite so good when he does the same thing. Yeah, whenever I hear the Ed Block Courage Award, I, there's only one name that I ever think of for everything <laughs> up in the NFL nowadays. I always have visions of I, I can hear Jim Ross in my right ear going, "By God, he won the Ed Block Courage Award." I know Norman, is, <laughs> I, I know Boomer and the boys are having a big Capital Combat yeah. party. <laughs> I could not believe he said that on pay per view. Boomer, I, I just picture Boomer Esaias and Sam White sitting on the couch watching Capital Combat '90. That like just makes me laugh very hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, Liam, what what actually, I just want to go way back to how you became a fan of Brian real quick, because you mentioned right at the start of this interview how you were you had really been studying him for a long time. Uh, what was it about him that just really drew you in as a kid watching his career? What Do you have any particular match or angle that you remember that really locked you in on Brian Pillman, or what was it about him that made him so appealing to you? No, I hate him. When I was a kid, I hated his guts. I, uh... <laughs> This is funny now, but like when I was a kid, you know, obviously WCW and WF were pretty big here in, in the UK anyway in the early 90s. And, and WF had a great time slot on, on Sky and obviously they got a ton of pub for SummerSlam 92 uh, in Wembley. WCW had a better time slot somehow. And uh, even though the show just sucked. But uh, some of my earliest memories of watching WCW worldwide are when Brian turned heel and slapped Brad Armstrong at that Clash of the Champions. And he's Clash 20. Oh, yes. And uh, I just, I remember just, he had this sarcastic, I just hate his guts. I don't even know what it was. It's just, there's a Mark kid. I just couldn't stand him. I just, yeah, there was something about this guy that I just hate. And uh, as I watch more wrestling, obviously, and you fall in love with it, you, you go to the video store, that old, that relic of history. Um, might as well be talking about the Titanic, but, you know, <laughs> you go to the video store and I, I would, you know, get more WCW stuff. And there's Brian Pillman, it's this amazing baby face. And that was where I kind of, was jarred because like this guy's actually pretty great like how is you know i here's a guy that like i hate and he's a a, a great kind of mid-card heel at the time and obviously he just you know, and then he starts teaming with austin and, and that makes me hate him even more and then i go back and watch these tapes and he's just such a great baby face and then he had you know he's having the match with liger and i'm blown away and you know it's everything like that where it, just, it kind of just changed my perception of him pretty early on he's probably one of the first guys that i just kind of looked at and just thought there's you know, did you get the same thing? Kyle, this is a great question for you. I always got the sense when I was younger and I watched Brian, that he was one of the guys where there was more to him than most of the other guys. I don't even know how to, if it makes any sense, but it's that thing where like you see a guy, Foley was similar for me, where it's like you can see, you look at him and you're like, there's more to this guy. He's, there's, there's something intrinsically in him that's more interesting. And you can see that he's gonna get, he can do great things, but they're just not doing it in the current environment because WCW sucks. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because it always, you know, when I'm 10 or 11 years old and I'm exposed to Brian Pillman for the first time, I didn't know how to quantify it as, oh, this guy should be pushed more. That that was not something that was in my head. Yeah, like I kind of understood how it worked. But yeah, I remember like, because I had, it's funny, I'm a little older than you and I, I kind of went the other way. Like I soured on him as a baby face worker and then <laughs> like, like kind of like, you know, um, by 92. And then once that heel turn went and it, to be fair, by 1993, I was kind of a guy who would like cheer for the heels. Anyway, I was a big Shawn Michaels <laughs> guy. And I was just like, wow, like this is like, this guy is just like reborn. It's just like, as soon as that heel turn hit, 
And if you want to watch the team, if people want to, by the way, I think they're, I heard they're uploading uh, a lot of the WCW Saturday nights from that time period. So people will be able to go back and watch this on the network pretty soon. That transformation, because he was kind of, um, the, the light heavyweight division was dying at the time. He had lost to like Scotty Flamingo and he was hurt for like part of the fall, if I remember. And he just yeah. was a guy who I was like, eh, Brian Pillman, you know, he kind of like gets his ass kicked and, you know, <laughs> and I'm just kind of sorry. And then that heel turn happened. I'm like, holy shit, is this guy really good at doing this? And then, you know, California, and you mentioned that he had that period, you know, 94, 95, prior to lose Cannon, where again, he was kind of like a dead in the water baby face, turns heel again in the end of 95. And you're just like, wow. I mean, it was crazy. And then he's the talk of the internet a few months later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's actually interesting that it works that way for you because obviously you, you, if you got into it earlier and, and, and that's your... But that's the thing. Like, by the time the blondes were kind of on a roll and were tag team champions by then, I kind of already figured out, like, this guy's actually really, really good. And again, I was, I was early in my fandom, so I'm kind of still like, trying to figure out, like, what that means, really. But at the same time, it's like, this, he's just... Him and Austin, I just thought they were so good near the end. It's like, this team, like, and it helped that they were in a barren wasteland in WCW that was just absolute garbage uh, in 1993. It was like them and Vader and, and little else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting take because I just, it's the same thing where eventually I kind of doubled down and soured on him as a baby face as well afterwards when he was just doing nothing in the Hogan years until he went heel. And then again, it's like, the, again, yeah, just out of nowhere, like a phoenix. It's funny you mention how awful WCW was in 1993 because when I was growing up, I was just hardcore all WWF. I hardly ever watched WCW. And around 1993, one of my cousins gave me like a box of WCW trading cards. And I did not know Brian Pillman at all at that stage of my life. And I remember seeing Flying Brian on, on the cards and him flying through the air and thinking, this guy looks pretty cool. I'd like to check him out. But then I, I hated WCW so much, I never never really watched it. Um, and I didn't really know Pillman until he came to the WWF. And um, I was, you know, I was pretty young. I'm like sixth or seventh grade. And I like to be like the smart fan among my friends back then. Like, oh, did you know this guy was in WCW in this in this tag team called the Hollywood Blondes? And like, none of my friends watched WCW, but I remember there being such an emphasis when he signed with like the press conference. They showed like clips of that on TV. And the the big memory I have of him coming to the WWF was uh, the well, he did some announcing, but then the thing he did with Austin on I think it was Superstars with the chair and, and him stomping on his ankle with the chair. And that really made me take notice of him. But I, I went back years later and then watched all the early 90s WCW stuff. And the stuff with Liger really blew me away like you guys have talked about. But I almost wish that I had watched it live and not seen it years later. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's funny because, like, when you actually look at it, by the time he gets to the WWF, he doesn't really do a lot of great stuff there, to be honest. It's, no. it's, there's very, it's, very few, it's, it's few and far between, unfortunately, because of the state he's in. Um so yeah, I mean, in terms of like, if you're looking for the best work of Brian Pillman's career it, in the ring, obviously it comes way before um, yeah, he gets to the WWF. But you know, he, he still gets his, uh, his his moments here and there, and he gets the the Canadian Stampede, which is a great show. So uh, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Yeah, and the thing too with Brian is what really I, I didn't really gain the full appreciation for him. You know, I'll be honest. Until years later, you go back and watch some of the interviews, the funny stuff that he would slip in, like you know, the blondes were doing an interview and Ricky Steamboat came out. And he would, he, what did he say? I have to say, he, he sets up like, oh, here comes the family, man. His three illegitimate children nowhere in sight. 
And it's just <laughs> stuff like that that is so awesome that you know you don't hear. And, and you had one of my favorite lines of the book. I, I was so I, I popped when I when I saw this in the book. Liam is when he first came to WWF. You know, I think his first live appearance was King of the Ring '96. If it oh, wasn't yeah. the first, it was the first. But when he comes out and Jim Ross interviews him, and Jr. just has this look on his face like, oh, this is, I can't even believe what this guy's going to say. And he looks out. They're in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. It's the night Austin, you know, coined the, the famous phrase, Austin 316, I swooped your ass. And Pillman just goes, well, look in here. It's easy to see why Jeffrey Dahmer tried consuming this entire state from head to toe. <laughs> and Jim Ross just is like, damn it. Like, I think, and yeah. like, yeah, I just love like the great little one-liners Pillman had, where you know, and you, and you can't get that now. You know, I hate to like be like sound like the grandpa, you know, get off my lawn, kids, but you can't get that kind of stuff off the cuff in promos nowadays. I mean, I guess no. you can, but it's just you know, you're not going to see it. It's the it's an exception, not a rule. And to be fair, it was an exception, not a rule back then. Brian was was ahead of his time, like. Yeah, but I think the funny thing is there's so much of that. Like that, there's like you know when it comes time to edit the book and I'm having to chop stuff out. There's that the, the the period in the book where I'm just quoting him on commentary and Shotgun Saturday Night, and he's just got so many amazing lines. And there's one where I think they're in like Seattle. Well, they are definitely in Seattle. But like I, I remember reading a report that I, I got you know when I was just trying to get everything I could possibly get a hold of. of Brian Pillman going out to Seattle in a Kurt Cobain T-shirt, saying that if he lived there, he'd have blown his brains out too. You know, just like <laughs> stuff like that. It's like that's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's just he's the guy sorely missed. Was way ahead of his time. And um, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Liam, about the book? I guess right now I'm trying to think. Um, what other questions? I think, you know, I could obviously go on forever about every time period in his career, but um, you know, I, I got one. I got else? one. Okay. Can you can you speak to your relationship um, doing the book with Brian's son? Because I've I've seen yes. um, some of the comments that he has made and how he learned more about his dad from your book than anywhere else. And that I got to think that's the ultimate co- compliment that you could ever get from this project. Yeah, it's kind of. I wish it was, but at the same time, it's not the most heartbreaking thing you ever heard. Yeah, like, I, yeah, for sure. This this poor this poor kid like is learning from a guy in England who, who's asked everybody and compiled it in one place. And I mean, it is the ultimate compliment. And Brian Brian Junior is just hilarious. Like if he can if he can channel that, he's gonna make it because he's just got he's got bags of personality. He's he's hilarious. But uh, I mean, you know, getting to talk to him and kind of getting to know him a little bit was awesome because. You just kind of, you know, there wasn't really a lot that I could ask him about his dad because he didn't really have any memories of him because he died when he was so young, like three or four years old. And it's like, so you can't really go, so, you know, how about that promo your dad did that, you know, you don't remember kind of a thing. Um, it's, it's it's horrible to say, but I mean, that's the reality of it. He, you know, they, they really have no memories of him. So you can't really quiz him about that. But he was just so refreshingly honest about everything that happened after his dad passed away, which is another part of the book that was not fun to write, but is massively interesting in a, in a different type of way um but i mean it, it was great getting to talk to him just because he's such an open book and, and he doesn't have any reservations about his opinions and it's super refreshing do you have any other projects in the pipeline yet because you're, you're getting a lot of great publicity out of this book and rightfully so it it like i said at the beginning of the show is this is one of the best wrestling biographies written in a long time i think uh it, it just won the wrestling observer newsletter award for yes, best wrestling yeah, book of the year yeah, we need. Yeah. We should have said that. You know, unlike Okada, it didn't cost Liam any money to win that award. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Mark. Yeah, having said that, though, I just about shit my pants when I when I heard that I won that because I, I there's no I. I was actually dreading it because I just thought there's no there's no way there's no there's no way that I was actually I was dreading it because I just thought because the book was released really late in the year it's like November so it's like there's no way that enough people are going to have read it and and you know or bought it read it you know calculate an opinion and vote for it at the same time so there's no way there's going to be Jim Ross's book there's no way because it's it, Jim JR's has been so publicized and everything like that and really this has had like no advertising other than word of mouth and me and you know just me trying to get the word out but other than that, it's like I, I just couldn't believe that it not only was got, did well, but won. I, I was floored. But uh, no, I mean, in terms of other projects, I'm really just kind of trying to get this as far as it can. And it's it's cool because there's there's a lot of interest in in doing more with this um, from from other sources and, and maybe kind of uh, turning this into something more than just a book. So we'll see how it goes. Oh. Uh, it's a, early days yet, but, uh, but but there's a little bit of movement on that front. So it's kind of cool to uh, to kind of think that this could actually happen. Very cool. Yeah, well, I got to say, you know, this book for me, it's rare that I get a wrestling book where uh, I just can't wait to get home to read it. I think with Foley's book, you know, I was in high school back then, but it was like, I can't wait for school to get over so I can get home and read that book. And with this book, it's the same kind of thing, but I'm older. So it's like, I can't wait to get home from work to check out the next chapter in the book. It is so well written. I've learned so much from it. I cannot recommend it enough. So any of our listeners out there, Check out Crazy Like a Fox on Amazon. It is, yeah. You will learn a lot about Brian Pillman. It will make you dig through the WWE Network archives. It'll it'll make you go to YouTube to check out some of the footage. And you'll learn how far ahead of his time Brian Pillman was and just what a great performer he was. I'll tell you what, thank you very much for the kind words because uh, I, I appreciate any time anybody puts me in that kind of lofty category is just ridiculous to me. But uh, I mean, I, thank you so much for it. And I think one of the other things too, and I'll, I'd be good to kind of get your gauge on this too, just, uh, just for your thoughts on it, is I think that when I was doing the book, I mean, you know, I've been a fan for a long, long time, but actually putting this book together, it felt like I learned so much about the business in the way that the business itself was during the period of Brian's life that in putting that through, I'm really kind of, some of the, the nicest feedback I've got has been people saying that it really kind of doesn't just cover Brian, but it really says a lot about the nature of the business and how kind of, you know, it has progressed a lot in, in, in a lot of ways since then where it really was just this, I'm sure it's a very bizarre business now too, but I mean, it was just so strange in the eighties and nineties, the way that it operated. It's just so, it's so bizarre. And I think that this, this book kind of shines a light on it because, because Brian had to deal with all of it. Yeah. The, the controversies that we, opine about now on twitter are nothing like what was going on <laughs> behind the scenes in the world of pro wrestling in the 1980s and 1990s oh man yeah That's can you sure. imagine if twitter was around during pillman's heyday and just like some of the stuff he was doing getting out there and pictures and video clips oh, and it, it's insane yeah, and I mean, he, he would have used that to his better. I mean, you know, I mean, he could have kind of eliminated the middleman. I mean, that, that's what's amazing. Oh, I mean, man. who would have known? Yeah. Imagine video recording or social media in the days of just his college career. I think some, some of the stories about him in college in the book are, are pretty funny, including the pull-up bar with the ladies. That I found that one to be pretty funny. Or, wrestling, <laughs> or, or, or just wrestling a pencil. You know, he could have just done that himself. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. No, it is a great book. Uh, check it out, guys. Liam, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Maybe we can get you back at some point. Uh, I hope everyone checks out the book. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for, for uh, reconnecting with your old pal, Kyle. It's been a blast. No, no. Thank you very much so much for having me. And like I say, anytime that you, uh, you want me back on, just give me a buzz. Sounds great. Hey, well, what are you looking forward most to at Mania? You know, since I know you're not going to be there this year. Yeah, thanks for rubbing that in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, 
you know what's funny is like this whole I was listening to your show a couple of weeks ago and you you spent the whole show talking about you know doesn't this look like Daniel Bryan's coming back and the whole show as I'm listening to it, I'm just thinking to myself there's no way there's no way and then at one point Carl actually said if he doesn't come back we've just wasted a podcast and I'm thinking <laughs> to myself you may just have because I just can't see it happening and now even though I don't know what's going on with Shane just the, the combination of the you know how great he looked last week and then how great that promo was last night at least i thought it was oh, where yeah. he's just so much fire and so much of that real emotion that, that you it feels rare now um and it's I, I just i'm just looking forward to seeing what happens there i mean it's actually a fairly secretly quite a loaded show and uh, i yes. think it's going to be probably pretty good i mean you guys are probably going to be depending on how lively the crowd can stay for such a long show and with so many big matches which is a bit of a concern sometimes um i think that, that could be a hell of a show and I'm, obviously i'm looking forward to the daniel bryan thing more than anything else i love nakamura uh i think that him and stars could have a great match but it's 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 again it's a babyface match who knows what it's going to be um and there's just enough on the show that i think is is going to be really really interesting to watch but uh, but brian takes it for me yeah yeah is it terrible <laughs> i told this to ryan already that as soon as they broke the news of Daniel Bryan coming back, I was like, thank God that podcast is not going to like be the <laughs> most mocked thing in the history of the internet now. Because we got way into that. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I did say that. I'm like, guys, if Daniel Bryan is not the mystery partner, we are the dumbest sons of bitches <laughs> yeah. that have ever tried to a wrestling yeah. podcast of all time. Kyle sent me a text message the next morning. Like, I get up, and Kyle's got a message waiting on my phone. He's like, guys, I think that I think it could be Chris Jericho. I think we just wasted I, our time. Yeah, I was just trying to like prep us. I was like, guys, it's going to be this guy. And then they pulled up Fozzie's schedule, and they're like, it is impossible for him to make it from New Hampshire to New Orleans at that time. I'm like, Chris Jericho is appearing at WrestleMania. It's <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it, it was, it was uh, we were a few days ahead of the curve there. I'm kind of proud of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I wish Justin could have made the interview because when I first met Justin, our other co-host, who we've talked about on the show, is super excited for the Brian stuff, too, and Cena Undertaker. He One of the first conversations I ever had with him was about the Pillman-Liger match. And oh, that's uh, right. You mentioned that to me. Yeah, that, that is like one of his all-time favorite matches. So I can tell you, I can tell you a story about the, uh, the, uh, the Omni match uh, <laughs> off-air. <laughs> what's right. that? The Christmas match? Yes, I've got one hell of a story about that match for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. With that said, thanks for tuning in. Check us out on iTunes, TopRobeNation.com, Stitcher Radio. Tune in wherever podcasts are found. Thanks again to our guest, Liam O'Rourke. Check out Crazy Like a Fox. And we will be back next week with our WrestleMania preview show. So we will talk to you all then. <laughs>